<clears throat> okay. Hey, Pete. Good to see you again. We're back. You know where? At Dorothy's place. Hello, Elias. So glad to be here. All right. We have a special thing going on today. Solidarity Hall has not published a book in an embarrassingly long time, but we're about to. We're threatening to. Um, in the next couple of months, we are going to be publishing a new English language translation of the reflections, the pensamientos in Spanish, of Father Jose Maria Arizmendi Arrieta's um, uh, work, his only work in English, it will be, because he did not write books. Uh, he just got stuff done. <laughs> yes. um, so, so anyway, it's this amazing. is a great this is a great problem. You know, the people that actually do things don't have time to write the books <laughs> and the people that write the books it's don't often do things. Kind of reassuring about him. Yeah. No. Yeah. He wrote a ton of stuff. He just didn't publish it. And it was all very workaday speeches and memos and business plans. And anyway, so that's the whole uh, dimension to him. We'll, we'll get to in a moment. Um, back when Solidarity Hall was getting going, um, I know you've had this experience too. Mondragon has a way of coming up. The Mondragon cooperatives are this iconic effort begun in post-World War II Spain in a small town in the Basque country. And for people in any way involved in a solidarity economy, um, they are held up as maybe the shining successful example of cooperativism and economic democracy. Um, and they are a very difficult model to imitate, I would say in many ways, first of all, because of the scale that Mondragon uh, has risen to, something around 90 or 100,000 employees. It is now a global federation of cooperatives um, in multiple industries. So it's sort of a staggering accomplishment and yet, uh, to my surprise, there was no book, there was no place to read about the famous founder of this organization, Father Jose Maria Arismendi, as his name is sometimes shortened. So uh, Solidarity Hall sp spotted this and began to get to work on getting the permissions to do an English language version, which I think you have a copy of, right? Yes, and it's amazing. It is um it is written. Can we talk a little bit yeah. about just its structure? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I want to do. Yep. Yeah, it's written in, you know, as all kind of great works of philosophy, it's written in like numbered lines <laughs> of little um, statements, each yeah. of which themselves alone is profound and worthy of reflection. Indeed, indeed. I should explain that that is because he had an editor. It actually is not Arismendi's book. It is an anthology of snippets that his very capable biographer, uh, a man whose last name is Azur Mendy, um, put together after uh, Father Jose Maria died. And he assembled them topically. Uh, the book has sort of two major sections, the first being people and society, and the second being work and the cooperative experience. Um, sorry, cooperative enterprise, although he did also believe it was an experience. Um, the book is oddly, in a way, not super theological or Catholic or anything like that. It's, to my mind, almost unique in being a kind of a manual of 
management. Um, although it doesn't quite read like that, a sort of a philosophical <laughs> reflection on a very new way of doing business, you could say. Yeah, it's like an airport book that you find <laughs> that tells you how to run your business, except right. in a revolutionary cooperative way. Exactly, exactly. Yes. A it's classic a classic of the it, management genre. It, it will be a little paperback, 120 pages. Um, but um, most people find it just astounding uh, in that he was so innovative and so different from the way people might imagine a small town Catholic priest in uh, rural Spain uh, at this terrible uh, moment of desolation right after uh, World War II. So um, we, we might say a little bit about him. And then I thought I would read uh, some quotes from the book just uh, one by one. And then we could sort of each comment briefly as we're inspired uh, to kind of get into some of the thematic stuff. How, how does that sound? That sounds great. And I have some pullouts as well, too. That yeah, struck good. me. Yeah. Um, you know, one way of thinking about where this guy was is to refer to um, an art object that a lot of people may be familiar with, and that is the famous painting of Guernica. A lot of people know Guernica by Pablo Picasso. It is possibly the most famous anti-war painting uh, ever created. It's an enormous 11 foot by 25 foot wide canvas in black, white, and gray. And it commemorates the terror bombing, the Blitzkrieg bombing of a Basque town called Guernica. Um, Arizmendi was a young Basque, and that identity is very important for him. Um, he was beginning seminary, and he was a journalist. Uh, with a, a streak of Basque nationalism when this happened in 1936. Um, Franco's revolutionary uh, group, his nationalistic group, had partnered up with Hitler and Mussolini. And Blitzkrieg bombing was sort of a new idea. And they asked Franco if they could try it out on a piece of territory in Spain. And he suggested Guernica which was an ancient Basque city. It went on for hours, it killed thousands of civilians, and it was front page news around the world for the, the enormity of this uh, unprovoked attack on an innocent population. Picasso was a non-political painter, but he painted this canvas. And uh, I cite that to, to, to give background to where Father Arzmendi was in 1936, 1937, when this happened. So therefore, his career, his life in Spain as a Basque was uh, a very delicate kind of dance. The Basque were really a persecuted minority. Um, and it probably was only his Catholic identity that enabled him to very carefully negotiate with the Franco regime in order to keep his projects alive and um, uninterfered with. So very difficult, very difficult scene. He, he arrives, uh, he finishes seminary. He arrives in Mondragon uh, somewhat against his wishes. He was hoping to go to Belgium um, because he was a bit of an intellectual. And instead he winds up in this little town that is flat, economically flat, impoverished, uh, almost one of the poorest places in Spain. Uh, there are orphan children wandering the streets, 
and he discovers that his predecessor priest has been murdered by the regime. Wow. So that's his arrival in Mondragon. Um, what he begins doing right away is organizing all sorts of social things. He organizes a soccer club. He organizes other kinds of activities. And talk about a long haul strategy. For the next 10 or 15 years, he is busily organizing all kinds of efforts, none of them political, none of them economic, really, um, as a way of just embedding himself in the, in the culture, in the society, and kind of building up his, his uh, local network and identity in this poor little uh, Basque town. So it's some time before he actually founds the first co-op. And before he gets to the co-op, he founds an, a little trade school, a little industrial school. And that is because he comes around to, through his reading, the idea that it is education that is going to liberate uh, the workers. And he means by education, something much bigger than technical training. So he hosts, uh, hosts reading circles and he does 2000 reading circles in 15 years in Mondragon. So by the time he gets ready to start the first co-op in the mid 1950s, he has already developed uh, a kind of a following and a group of younger guys, engineering students who want to be involved in this first business, but their, their formation their ideas about what they're doing are based on years and years of coaching and talking and wow. planning. And that, that's, is, where, you know, you, that's where you it came hear, from. You hear people say, you know, they have the revolutionary idea and they say, why don't we start with a book club or something? <laughs> right. And then you always kind of want to be not, you want to be cynical about that and yeah, say, yeah. ah, you know, you, you, you want to remake the entire economy and you want right. to start with us all reading an article and only half the people read the article and you meet up on Thursday and people schedule, yeah. cancel it and you want to go to next Thursday. Yeah. But his actually started with a reading circle. Absolutely. That's amazing. No, he, he was very, story. he was very kind of Paolo Freire like, and he later read Paolo Freire. Um, he, he really thought education was liberatory. No question about it. The, the great connection in his head was to put labor and education together or work and education together. So the workplace became a kind of school of democracy. Yeah, this is beautiful. I Isn't also, that an amazing thing? It's, it's powerful, amazing. And powerful. he really lives by what he preaches. And in some ways, you, know, you, you say he's not, you know, the writing is not very Catholic, but there's a, there's some very Catholic things about this. Oh, you know, it makes it's me, suffused. No, it's yeah. almost its own parable. I, you know, there's that, there's that famous joke in the Bible where uh, Nathaniel says, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Oh, right, it's like yeah. everyone like laughing about like, can the Messiah come out of Nazareth? Yeah. And um, it's kind of beautiful that he wanted to go to Belgium and, you know, be part of the scene. He ends up in a tiny town and out of that comes this great example. Exactly. Um, and that's what, you know, we're taught that it all happens on the margins. He, he's a little bit like Dorothy Day. He's doing this obscure thing. The church doesn't care. They're no, they don't support him. They, in fact, he, he gets to a certain point early on where the local business people are getting a little nervous about this guy. And they go to the bishop and say, you know, could you transfer him out of here? 
So how did he survive that? I don't know. He did. He had a, a great. I mean, I think his parishioners and other people said, no, 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 no. This guy, we cannot possibly lose this guy. So, and, and he also believed if he transferred, he would lose everything. He had planted wow, very right, loyal, such to deep place. roots. He had to yeah. stay. He had to stay or it wouldn't work. So let me let me uh, throw out a few uh, quotes from from the little book, and then we'll see which ones we might want to pull up and ponder a bit. Um, early on in the very first section, he talks about the human person. And I should add that, uh, like Martin Luther King Jr., um, Arismendi was much influenced by a philosophical school called personalism. And personalism is a kind of an ecumenical thing. There's a Catholic version, there's a Protestant version, there's a Jewish version, there's a non-religious version. But at any rate, it was a, a writer named Emmanuel Mounier, who back in the 30s and 40s wrote about personalism, had a journal. And Arismendi was profoundly affected by this, the idea of putting the human person at the center of your philosophical outlook. So in the book, his comments on the human person are very much uh, from that. For example, uh, number 23 is first people, then cooperatives. I love that. That's so beautiful. And he, he also writes, we live in the heart of a community, a town inhabited by people, not proletarians. Yep. Which is also, um, you know, of, of I'm guessing, correct me if you're you're more of the expert, Elias, this is similar to Martin Luther King's thing of, you know, his, his gripe with Marxism hmm. is not the great critiques of the structure. You know, he's like, I'm kind of down with the critiques yeah. of the structure. Oh, yeah. It's the lack of centering of the individual dignity of human right. people. Same, same. And, I, I'm, and that's where Arzmendi's also, he's in a country, you know, racked by ferment between warring ideologies and he Absolutely. finds another way. Absolutely. Yes, that's, that's a good point. It, it's just extraordinary when you get into his life a little bit, how he was man uh, how he managed to hold all this together without going too far in any direction. Because I, I think he was just kind of on a knife edge with the regime. They didn't know what to make of him. Some people were very suspicious of him. He uh, did two things. He didn't talk about politics. And number two, he did not make enemies. He tried very hard not to do that. And that was his way of being left alone so that he could get the work done. But in Spain, fascist Spain of the 1940s and 1950s, that's pretty much how you had to live, you know? So um, let me throw in a couple here. This is, will seem a little out of order. He, he was also interesting in being, we would say, quite a bit more progressive in another way that you wouldn't think of. He was very much in favor of bringing women into the workplace and he had a very kind of evolved sense of women that comes up in the book in a couple of little quick items. Uh, he says, 56, um, fragment 56, our people suffer when only men are present. And he also said- Ahead of his time. Absolutely. This is 1940 Spain, Catholic Spain. Yeah, Imagine. yeah it's Spain. Imagine, it's you not, know? you know, it's not Sweden or something. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Um, number 66, in every society, a woman's position is the exact measure of its level of development. So that's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, 
let's see here. You read a good one. That was one of my one of my favorites. Um, hang on Can one I? Second. Yeah. Yeah. You got one. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I have one I, that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. But if you have one first, you can go. Uh, <laughs> this is what you get at Dorothy's place, listeners. You get fighting over what air is Mendy quote. We get to say next. It's important. It's important. <laughs> right. Uh, number 43. This is this is should be one of the more famous ones. The world has not been given to us simply to contemplate, but to transform. Yeah, this is such a theme. You know, he has all these really simple themes, you know, that yep. that are so deep and profound, though, very deep and simple. So, you know, contemplation and action, a classic theme of kind of th of justice discourse, you know, praxis, as some call it today. Yeah, he has another right. on like, there is no um, there is no economic revolution. The economic revolution will be moral or it will, it will uh, yes. not be. The moral revolution will be economic or it will not be. Exactly. It's always this um, bringing together, you know, if I had to go one meta level up of what he's doing, he's always bringing together these contrarying, contraries. He's always saying both and on these classic divides. Yes. Um, it's all very like, it is all there. You know, mm -hmm. no, the revolution will be reformist. The reform will be revolutionary. The um, the liberation will be work and discipline. The discipline will be liberatory, you know. Yep. Um, yep. The law will be freedom. Freedom will be the law. Lack of law is lack of freedom. You know, it's... Um, it's this kind of realist, idealist, um, which again, they, uh, <laughs> that he's he's mixing that the contraries of the day. He, he, he he's a capacious in. thinker, you know. He's a very capacious thinker. He can he can embrace these these uh, seeming contradictions, you know. Um, how about this one? This is on um, what cooperativism does to the members, um, or, or rather, how how you make uh, owner workers, uh, members, in other words. Number 140, before we dream of making leaders, we have to think about making people. Before teaching them public relations and manners, we have to get them used to forgetting about themselves. Wow. <laughs> Great. Yeah, oh. no, this is so funny. That's so resonant today. You know, what year was that written? Do you do you bet? You know, 19... maybe it could be the 60s or 70s, 60s even. 60s yeah. or 70s. Yeah. You know, I think about I went to the school where all they talked about was like, we are building leaders. We are building leaders. You, know, <laughs> exactly. you go to any nonprofit industrial complex thing about yep. education and they yep. say, we're creating the leaders to tomorrow. But that's such a great point. It's like we got way, you know, as we're recording this, the day of a famous governor resigning. That's right. Being That's a leader, right. but not a person. <laughs> not, exactly. doing, not doing as well being a person. You know, he's a That's person, right. but not That's doing right. as well at it. And, um, and, uh, and um, the, you know, it's such a great example. You know, it's, I, yeah, I often like the phrase, like, before we're activists, we're citizens. Before we can change it, we must yep. be part of something. Yeah. You got to be a neighbor before you can be a rabble rouser. It's like, yeah, this this basic, simple stuff about just, uh, you know, being part of community before we we go to the next stuff. And this goes into the theme. It's really slow. You know, that's this right. is slow work. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, there's a little section in the first part where he talks a bit about uh, Christianity. There's what I meant earlier was that there's not much doctrine in the book. There's not much "quote unquote" theology, although the book is obviously suffused with his kind of Christian vision. But he has a couple of things to say about this. 
on number 163. To be a Christian is not only to possess the truth, but above all, to practice the truth, which is the same thing as doing good. I love that. I love that. That's, yeah, no, it's often, um, we often think doing good is like, uh, I must memorize these rules and I must do what I don't want to do you yeah. know you want to yeah. yeah. you want to drink but don't drink you want to cheat but don't <laughs> cheat you want right. to pass the person but talk to them but someone once said you know uh it's it's just about doing what you want to do but learning more you know getting more in tune with the sacred so that what you want to do becomes the right thing and in some ways like knowing the truth is yeah. is in that spirit you know if you know what is right, you will, it will become easier to be good. Yeah, that's good. Yes. And, and the very next one, which uh, reminds me of Pope Francis at moments a little bit, number 164, if being a Christian were nothing more than possessing the truth, and if it were enough for Christians to embrace it, then even a phonograph record could be a Christian. <laughs> what a great line. I love that. I a love little that. edge, very a little funny. edge on that one. All right. There's, I got one here, which is, you know, this is, this is something I think we don't talk about enough. So here's the quote. The idea is to institutionalize integrity. Better yet, the idea is to institutionalize human greatness. And this is, you know, I'd love to talk about each of those and why a co-op is captures both of these. Yeah. So what I'm guessing institutionalized integrity is, unless I'm misreading, is, you know, when you have a cooperative enterprise, when you structure things democratically or another way, and he kind of uses these interchangeably, when you have a democracy, you know, in, in some organization mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. some society or some community, you institutionalize the integrity by instead of having to wish for your leaders to be good mm-hmm. or your leaders to take into account everyone's needs or your leaders to act in the public interest, you institutionalize them yeah. acting in the public interest by um, b- baking into it that everyone is together on this. So that's one part. But this institutionalized human greatness is what we don't talk about enough, mm-hmm. which is humans have agency. They have ideas that they want to have realized. They want to be big. They don't want to be belittled. They believe they're more than they're told that they are. So much in the world tells us you're small, you're nothing, your ideas don't matter. You have nothing to share with this world. You cannot co-create. Let leave that you cannot co-create with God as 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 Martin Luther King said we are called to be. We're called to be co-workers with God. Yep. Um but what entrepreneurs, you know, tap into that make people excited about business creation or organizational creation or art, you know, the creation of art or the creation of a family or, you know, the, the spreading of ideas through writing or something is they tap into that part of us that wants to overcome that, that wants to have our mm-hmm. ideas become realities, that wants to make the world. Yeah. Um, and I think so many people in our circles don't talk about that enough, that that mm-hmm. is something we deeply want. Um, and that when you have a democracy, you're not just talking about the negatives that you're stopping. You know, you're stopping unchecked power, which is very important. You're institutionalizing integrity. You're also institutionalizing people's ideas becoming reality. People having a venue where they can create. People having, when you say, I want their voice to be heard, it's not just the voice of, of, of our victimhood. Mm-hmm. It's also the voice of our creation. Yeah. 
And um, and I think that's a beautiful thing about co-ops too. You can go into work and you can say, not just don't fire me. You can also say, I think we should serve something else at the bakery that we run together. Yep. Yep. I think we should do an annual Halloween day. I think we should, I think we should expand to the store next door. Right. I think we should change the font. You know, there are there are um there are, that's the institutionalization of human greatness. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I think he saw this <clears throat> as a process that uh, was going to happen in the workplace when um, newer members would come in and often would sort of be hesitant to get involved in these decisions, this analysis. I mean, you know, the idea of just being a modest worker. I just want to show up. I want to do my job. I go home. What is all this other complicated thing I have to understand? And what he was getting at with this kind of educational dimension in the workplace was the way in which there was a great liberation in realizing you don't need a boss. What an idea. You can be, we can be the boss. We are the boss. There's nothing that we can't figure out here. There's nothing, you know, it, in the early days, particularly, and with the, the simpler kinds of manufacturing he was doing, then it was pretty easy to say, there's nothing here we really need much technical expertise with, really. Um, although later, as we all know, you know, the economy got more and more kind of complicated and technological and sophisticated, but still at bottom, his point was <clears throat> MBAs are not what you think they are, <laughs> essentially. And not only that, what they know, we don't want. So, you know, he, he wouldn't have said it quite that way, but it's, it's what it adds up to. He really very much believed that workers were so browbeaten, so kind of accustomed to taking a lower view of their own capacities, that co-ops were one way that they could suddenly awaken into real agency for the first time. Obviously, some people more than others, you know, it was, it was always kind of a, a, a dynamic process. Um, but the, the great thing that he saw emerging there was real personhood. People really coming to their fore, developing, flourishing in a way that ordinary jobs could never offer. Amen. You know, Roberto Unger calls this faith in the constructive genius of ordinary men and women. It's very you know, close. It's, yes, yes, it's, it's it the, this idea that you, you have to believe that other people have constructive genius and you have to teach them that they themselves have it and we ourselves have it um and if you say oh that can happen in community life and civic life but it can't happen at work you know that's that's taking away you know half of our society and no, half of our day you know waking no, right. hours <clears throat> right um you know so it's it's a very serious thing you know there's this book uh that it's kind of a businessy book, but I think about it all the time. And like when we're talking about democracy and especially democracy at work, have you ever heard of this book, The Starfish and the Spider? No. Oh, it's it was like it it um I think it was a pretty well selling one. It's like an airport book. Yeah. But the big idea of the starfish and the spider came out mid two thousands. Um, was a, a spider has a head in its head, and mm -hmm. then it has these legs that follow what the head says. And if you destroy the head, um, the whole thing's done. Mm -hmm. 
a starfish has its brain distributed throughout all of its legs. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, if you cut off one of, you know, its legs where its brain is, there are other parts of its brain that work and adjust and make things work. And it's able to kind of, it's much more uh, resilient uh, than a spider, like a daddy long leg. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, it talked about organizations that were organized as starfish or organized as spiders. And it actually talks about, you know, this is where I first got obsessed with like Alcoholics Anonymous, Uh which is, um, you know, a very starfishy organization. It has a book and a set of principles that it tries to spread widely among the membership mm-hmm. as opposed to having like the emperor of alcoholics anonymous that right. you have to like, listen to and then right. the membership is the brains of the whole thing the whole thing exists throughout its people that's powerful um, yeah it talks about negative examples of this like lone wolf terror groups have mm-hmm. seen success by like spreading an ideology among the cells um, and not like taking direction from a leader, you know, like a leader. Hmm. And so when we do anti-terror stuff where we like kill the leader of Al Qaeda, it's like there are now Al Qaeda cells everywhere that exactly. are alive with the mission. And um, and it says the way to do it, you know, to build either a good for good or for ill uh, starfish organization is you write a lot of the ideology down, you give it, you put it in like a book so that it can spread. You teach people, you take seriously teaching everyone it. You don't try to make it that and one final thing on this the vanguard silicon valley firms Mm -hmm. feel like their headquarters should be like this and i'm saying headquarters particularly because they outsource the old model of capitalism Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. their like drivers or their workers or their factories but at their headquarters like exactly complex exactly um there is still some hierarchy like the, the coders still need to unionize but but they really try to make their um campuses of their of their um like vanguard technology firms like universities they try to have learning all the time they try to have these serves all the time they try to have everyone like run their own groups and like the ceo doesn't even know what's going on in some corner because something's happening and they try to have that liveliness and the reason they do it is because it's really good for production yeah when you you're completely unresilient when you don't do this and this is like Another contrary that Arismendi resolves, which is we have been debating for 30 years the difference between growth and equality. We say, oh, either we can grow the economy <clears throat> and by being really efficient and hierarchical, or we can have equality by having all these regulations and tax and transfer programs that help spread the growth of the hierarchical people. But it's totally wrong. When you have a horizontal society, when you have widespread education, when you have widespread ownership and empowerment, when you have widespread trust, when you have widespread, uh, when you have brains spread out throughout the whole the yeah. whole culture, instead of, you know, hoping everyone just is the appendages of the smartest one percent. Um, uh, you grow more and you're more equal. And so that's the dream, you know, of a democratic economy. And Very good. Very good. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. You know, um, all right. Related to that, <clears throat> you'll love this one. I'm sure you've already spotted it. Uh, we would naturally look for what Arismendi had to say about solidarity. So here's a wonderful quote. For me, this is number 319, by the way. For me, it is the key. And even if you like, the atomic secret <laughs> called to revolutionize all social life, class collaboration, collaboration of the people with their authorities and of the authorities with their people, 
collaboration of theory and spirit. This is the secret of an authentic social life and the key to social peace. It is not enough for the bosses to do good works. The workers must participate in them. It is not enough for the workers to dream of great reforms. The bosses must participate in them. It is not enough for the authorities to work hard and go to great lengths. The people must be with them. Where the authorities are divorced from the people, where the bosses follow a path without incorporating the workers into it, no spontaneous social life is possible. Any peace will be fictitious, and at any moment, the deception may turn into surprise and shock. Great. I had also pulled out that quote, so it must be very resonant that we both saw it. What a beautiful line. Um, And it's kind of a long-winded way of saying democracy, you know, saying we all here, we all rule together. And, you know, some might hear that and misread it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Elias, as this kind of uh, 90s, 2000s, early 2010s, hunky-dory, you know, we must decide we're all going to be environmental and then the bosses will get together and say we're going to you know uh we're going to use less water at the office and then the worker they ask the workers to join in some thing on that or the bosses will say we're doing corporate social responsibility and hope the you know workers join in that for all of us to get healthy or all of us to sleep more you know all, all of these corporate initiatives you see but i think he means it in a deeper way that when he says um it is not enough for the bosses to do good works. The workers must participate in them. I don't think, I think he means there will be no more. We will blur the line That's right. between bosses and workers. Cause That's if right. suddenly the bosses are doing the good works and the workers are participating in them. And suddenly we're both participating and deciding what is happening. Who's the boss, yeah. you know, anymore. And when you're saying it is not enough for the authorities to work hard and go to great lengths, the people must be with them. What's that saying? That's saying we're all the government. That's right. You know, we are all the authority. Um, that is the call of democracy, the the uh, the uh, blurring the lines of hierarchical status. Yep. Um, not by fiat, not by just saying there should be none and none of us have to work. It's by all of us stepping up to to co-create our shared world. Yeah. To cooperate <clears throat> as a cooperative. Is, that is a powerful uh, uh, and step- radical idea. That's as radical as they come in this world, right? I mean, um, it's funny. Know, he's 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 arguing. You know, he has a whole <laughs> section against utopian aspirations. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and he seems to position himself as a third way, um, not to the left of the communists of Spain, and yet, and yet, you actually think about the logic of what he's saying. No, right, right. Can he, it he, be more radical than that? Exactly. No, that's right. That's right. You know, maybe for listeners, it might be helpful if we just quickly indicate sort of one little nuts and bolts thing. The the principles of Mondragon, which he obviously had a hand in formulating, they, they were developed a little bit um, after his time. But very quickly, the 10 principles of this organization, which will tell you something about uh, the ideas in the book, are as follows. One, open admission. So hiring is open to all persons capable of carrying out the available jobs. There, there's no discrimination on race, gender, age, econo- sorry, socioeconomic levels. In other words, Mondragon hires poor people and then gives them loans to get into the job. So that's a pretty aggressive hiring strategy. Democratic organization is number two. Workers are owners. 
owners or workers, one person, one vote. Number three, this is key, sovereignty of employees work over capital. Um, the idea here is that the workers hire the capital. Capital doesn't hire the workers. So you can let that <laughs> bounce you know, around. What does that head. mean in practice? In, in practice, it really means, I, what it meant for ours, Mindy, I got to tell you a quick story about this. Early on in the very first little co-op, it was a handful of guys, young engineers. And, and Arsmendi said, after they had met for a few months, we're just beginning to get going. He said, you know, we have got to talk about financing. And they talked about it. It was a gloomy subject. And he said, well, actually, you know, we're going to have to form our own credit union. And the guys all looked at him like, father, are you kidding? We're just, you know, we're, we're technical guys. We're, we know a little bit of engineering. What do we know about finance? What are you talking about? You know, we can't do that. So they almost shoot him out of the meeting. So then like a month goes by and Arizmendi comes back to another meeting with a big stack of documents and he puts them down on the table and he hands them out to all the worker owners and says, here, you're all directors of a credit union. Wow. <laughs> he just went out and did it. He just went out and incorporated yeah. the credit union because he knew he knew that the financing was going to be the key thing. He already knew from the history of co-ops and other such projects in Spain that if you didn't have your own financing, you were very likely to have an extremely difficult time just staying alive. And in the end, people say that the key to Mondragon, the real, there are a couple of them, but one of them is the fact that they essentially created their own bank. And that bank, by the way, is now, I think, I don't know, the fourth or fifth largest bank in the country of Spain. And it's a cooperative bank. It is still a cooperative itself. bank. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I believe that's correct. So, so the financing was, was absolutely essential to control the capital, not so capital would not control them. Co-ops today, as we all hear about all the time, still struggle mightily with these questions over which financing, how should we go at it? How much should we take? When should we take it? What does it imply? And on and on and on. He knew, he knew from the get-go, you had better figure out how quickly to come up with as much of your own financing as possible if you want to make this work. Also, uh, number four, the subordinate nature of capital. Capital is a means to an end, not an end in itself. Available capital is used primarily to create more jobs. Wow, I love that. Not to distribute profit. Exactly. Basically. Not not wholly, no, not entirely. Participatory management is number five. Worker owners participate in decision-making and the management of the co-ops. By the way, this is sometimes characterized as meaning everybody votes on everything. That's not the way it works. There's a natural kind of division of labor. There's kind of a rotation of roles, um, but things are still highly participatory um, nonetheless. Number six, payment solidarity. Remuneration is regulated internally and externally. Internally, there's an agreed differential between the highest and lowest paid job. Externally, remuneration is maintained in relationship with similar local industries. And I think that's a more recent addition to the list because Mondragon, trying to stay alive in a neoliberal world economy, 
uh, reached a point where technically they had to come up with a premium for certain kinds of technical employees. And everybody sort of got that and went along with it and they tried to manage it. Um, but you can imagine what a difficult road that must have been trying to keep this, say, one to five, one to six differential between the lowest and highest paid member, and yet hire technically competent people in a competitive way. Very difficult uh, bind. Number seven is intercooperation. This is a big deal. In other words, one of the great advantages of Mondragon is that it was multiple co-ops, all or many of which collaborated with each other, even interoperated with each other. So instead of a competitive mindset, they all had the idea that we look for our brother or sister co-ops, and if we need to, we hire people from them. For example, when they had one uh, co-op close, a famous one in 2008, most of those employees were moved to other co-ops. So that's, that's amazing. And that's why, you know, what for people who aren't kind of tapped into the co-op world today, yeah. the, the desire is not like one-off co-ops in cities. It's an ecosystem. That's right. Exactly. The goal, you know, it really helps if you have multiple at once. That's right. Number eight is social transformation. Mondragon cooperatives invest a majority of their profits in the creation of new job new jobs. Funds are also used in community projects and in institutions that promote the Basque culture and language. How about this that? Is such a, yeah, this is such an example of left conservatism, you know, small yes. C conservatism. Yes. Because it's this love of the local. It's this love of community, this love of tradition, this through economic solidarity you know, deepening, deepening the relationship with, a you know, a way of being, um, and, um, and cultural survival. So, um, that's, that's very interesting. And number nine, universal nature. Mondragon proclaims its solidarity with other cooperative movements, with those working for economic democracy and with those who champion the objectives of peace, justice, and human dignity. Mondragon proclaims its solidarity, especially with people in developing countries. That's beautiful. An internationalism. And they've done a great job at it. You know, they they have done. That's a that's a complicated question. They've done the best they could. Yeah, no, no, I should say. Uh, yeah, sorry, practical, practically impossible this. circumstances. They've, they've been a great model and they have been. Is it true? Would you say they've been friendly to people learning from their model? Oh, no question about that. Places. Oh, they're great evangelists. What they hadn't figured out is how do we go to another culture and say to them, maybe you've not heard of this, but we'd love for you to organize as co-ops. What they discovered in China, Russia, Brazil, you know, the dozen or more countries they work in globally now is that on the ground and in the local legal systems, this turned out to be practically impossible to do. So often in other countries, and this is this is kind of part of the mixed story of Mondragon today, they have had to create relatively conventional firms, maybe firms with a much better kind of social uh, social policies for their workers. But on the whole, it is not true that Mondragon globally is a network of cooperatives. Mondragon cooperatives almost entirely exist in Spain uh, at this point. 
for all those reasons. Yeah, and this is, you know, we're working on this in the America, um, in the American context, I'm working on this through my democracy policy network is we need legal changes yes. to not have it just have to be the corporate form um, to actually kind of bake into the law the ability to do the cooperative form. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could I read a quote from the Invisible Committee that reminds <laughs> me of what Mondragon has done? What What is the Invisible Committee? It is the pen name of a French revolutionary group in the 60s. Oh, how funny. That's great. <laughs> Please. They say, revolutionary movements do not spread by contamination, but by resonance. Something that is constituted here resonates with the shockwave emitted by something constituted over there. Hmm. An insurrection is not like a plague or a forest fire, a linear process which spreads from place to place after an initial spark. It rather takes the shape of a music whose focal points, though dispersed in time and space, succeed in imposing the rhythms of their own vibrations, always taking on more density. Wow. And I just feel like Mondragon in the cult, you know, they have 100,000 worker owners, but yep. how many worker owners exist around the world today because Mondragon exists? Absolutely. Absolutely. And has resonated with people <clears throat> and made someone in that day when they're thinking, do I found the co-op bakery? Do I found the co-op laundry? Do I found the co-op bank? Will it work? The fact that it worked for Ars Mendy, the yep. fact that it worked at Mondragon yep. makes them go on and create their worker owner, their worker co-op. It's what Nathan Schneider talks about in uh, in in the preface to the book. He's like, I have heard the word Mondragon every day of my life from webinar <laughs> to webinar, from right. Melbourne to Boulder. Exactly. Um, and it's that is the power of an example. An, an example is worth a thousand books, you know, um, and um, and that is what Ayers Mendy has gifted to us most. No, exactly. <clears throat> it's a little bit like, um, you know, that moment uh, last summer when everybody suddenly said it looks like we're all going outside COVID or no go COVID because black lives matter millions of people in cities around the world they just all went outside they went outside in COVID and went down to the square the piazza the plaza wherever it was what music was that what were they hearing you know it reminds me of something from the 60s because it had that kind of spontaneous upwelling with no one in charge. That is the power of resonance. Yeah, resonance. Wow, that's great. That's good stuff. Their, their number 10 item at Mondragon is education, of course. Mondragon's commit, uh, cooperatives commit to the required human and economic resources to basic professional and cooperative education in order to have worker owners capable of applying all the basic principles mentioned above. So it is, it is, you know, Jessica Gordon Nimhart points this out in her afterward. Um, Arsmendi understood that economics and, and the workplace can be a project of human liberation if it's approached, you know, as, as a kind of an educational project. And and that's a great thing. That's it's difficult to do. And and it's a little disconcerting, I think, to new workers, as I say, that come into a co-op and wonder why we're doing all this other stuff, you know? You know, I, I don't have an MBA, but I'm going to be learning certain key numbers. And if I just get what these two or three key numbers mean, it's going to sort of open up 
the nature of, of the business to me, the cash flow and the financials and, you know, some other stuff that I never quite knew about before. But it's the reason that I can make these decisions as a fully fledged member of a group, you know? I love this. And it, you know, it, it, it again is talk, you know, it speaks to one of the debates of our day. You know, there's this big debate over tracking, you know, there's this idea of tracking. Do you track the book kids into the book classes and then the others into the apprenticeships? And, hmm. you know, some people are saying we need free college because, you know, 12 years isn't enough. We need four more years of college to meet the needs of the global economy. And others say, well, this is overeducating ourselves to death. And I think, again, this is an answer of both and. Yeah. It's that, you know, um, education is for everyone. Um, everyone needs to be a citizen. Everyone needs to be an owner, a worker owner, um, a cooperator. And thus, you need to be educated. You need to not just be specialized. You need to learn all the parts. And for a firm to survive, you can't just kind of only learn the specialized laws of today. You need mm. to be a general, mm. like a liberal artsy generalist to understand how something can be transformed in a wider thing and everything is connected to everything else. So you got to learn about the whole world. Um, <laughs> and yet, on the other side, it's saying that a lot of that education doesn't necessarily need to happen in formalized education. It yeah. should be happening everywhere. That's in right. That kind of John Dewey and spirit. That's right. Yep. Of, um, of uh, you know, Democracy and politics is everywhere, and education is everywhere. Uh, the school of public life, as Fred Dewey, exactly. our beloved Fred Dewey, um, yep. uh, put it. May he rest in peace. No, yes. exactly. You know, I, I have to admit that I am revising a little bit my sense of what co-ops are about. And I, I think I'm taking a, a less technical view of it. Um, you know, it's sort of a business model, and you need to do exactly this model, and you need to imitate these tenets of cooperativism and so on. You know, R.S. Mindy said in so many words, I think he was saying, we don't have a blueprint. We made this up as we were going along. And it really is in a way simply a practice. It's a practice that we have accumulated and that anyone could accumulate as long as you know the atomic secret, right? <laughs> I love that. That's so beautiful. You know, I think about it in weird places. Like, uh, I think about like summer camp counselors or those <laughs> teachers of woodshop class or theater class or something who see their job not only in achieving the task, but in um, bringing everyone along, in being leaders, understanders, and eventually cooperators in the task. Mm -hmm. They are doing an act of cooperating. Mm -hmm. um, in that spirit and kind of seeing what comes along in that. And it's very countercultural. It's, it's not what we're taught to value. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. It's not a blueprint. It's, it's more of a practice. I love that. Someone said to me, someone who I think is a little skeptical about whether worker co-ops, these little projects, onesie, twosie, they take so long. They're so complicated. There's only, there's less than 500 worker co-ops busy today in this country. Um, he's saying, you know, really, I wonder if co-ops are not simply another form and a powerful form of community organizing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
better understood yeah, that you know, way. You know, if, right? if the revel, if the moral revolution will be economic and yep. it will not be, and the economic revolution will be moral or it will not be. Yeah. That is a, that is a beautiful, yeah. It's just, you know, this is kind of a clear eyed realism, you know, it's calling BS <laughs> on our categories. We have all these categories that divide up the world, but, um, why is production separate? Why is, you know, making the bread for the town or making the part for the making the software for the for the larger software um, out there? Why is that different than, you know, protecting your neighborhood from being bulldozed mm -hmm. or throwing the annual Halloween or New Year's festival or raising the kid or taking care of the elder? It's all those work. It's all the stuff of life. That's right. You know, why would the rules of one place not be that, you know, different from the rules of another place? And in some ways, what he's saying is just bringing these very human ways of interacting, so pro-social ways of interacting to a space that has banished them. Um, That's right. Only very recently. That's right. <laughs> you know. All right. <clears throat> Great stuff. Um Pete, thank you for sitting in with me today. Um, the book, as I say, will be coming out, we hope, in a couple of months. We have a PDF free copy available, if you would like it, on the Solidarity Hall website. Go under Projects and pull down, and you'll see Arismendi's Reflections. This will be a subject we come back to. This is a big subject, the world of work and where it's going. Uh, sort of signals where Solidarity Hall is going, I think, as we begin to talk about maybe going a little beyond our, our previous boundaries of sort of European and American writers, mostly, uh, and into, uh, I think, more of a some kind of a global conversation is our idea, but still uh, attempting to combine somehow Eden with utopia, as we sometimes say. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And the name of the book, again, if people can search for it. Reflections. And you will find it for the moment only on the Solidarity Hall website for a free download. But hopefully by, let's say, roughly October or so, it will be in print and you can order paperback copies. Um, so we will be alerting everybody to that as we get a little closer to uh, publication. Go out and read it, listeners. It's a beautiful book. Great. Thank you, Pete. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Elias.